listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Good morning, Elam. And uh, Rich, it is a privilege to be present on the day of your uh, ordination. Um, Before I preach, just a a word to you and fellow elders and the church about eldership. Um, The word caught me when I looked over the scripture that I was assigned to read uh, today before your ordination from 1 Peter 5, where Peter exhorts the elders among a local congregation, and he calls them, he says, as a fellow elder. And so I had, to, I had to look at the word, and in the original, it's just a single word. It's not fellow elder. I bore you here. It's, it's sim presbyteros. It's one, it means to be an elder with. And I thought, when we function within our gifts as shepherds of the church, how much we need each other. It's not just to be called an elder. It's to be an elder with, a fellow elder. And so to the elders of, of Elam, entrusted with the care of shepherding uh, this church, I want you to know that you also are not just an elder board of, of, of four, but you are an elder among elders that Peter, historically, that I would, and that in the future we would say we are fellow elders together and trusted with the flock. There is a bond uh, between us, so uh, I'm honored to be a fellow elder with you. Um, and I'm honored to be present uh, today of uh, a date that I thought was going to happen a few months ago at, at Luke's uh, installation. Some of you may or may not know the parallels between your church family, Elam, and Luke's uh, church of upbringing and mine. Same one, a different Elam, a couple hours north of here, a little rural community of Clearbrook, uh, Minnesota. And the parallels do not escape me, not only in the name uh, Elam, and not only that Pastor Luke and I were raised in the faith there, but also when I, when I look over the ministry of Elam in Clearbrook and Elam of Osakis, I know that the reputation is of strong Bible teaching, believing, gospeling ministry with maybe for some a surprising vibrancy in a rural setting. I love it. I love the story of Elam Osakis and Elam Clearbrook for that for that reason. Um, I love it as I look over the wall of your former pastors, I see names like a who's who of who is pastored here and and see, oh, there's Andy Munson. He was also pastor of Elam and Clearbrook. He baptized me. Oh, there's Sanford Soma. He was also pastor in Elam and Clearbrook. He confirmed me. And so again, to Rich, we are bonded together, fellow Elams, fellow elders. And so uh, the only thing that's not fellow is that when I go around the Lutheran Brethren and I'm asked, they're like, which Larson clan are you related to? I say, none of them. Mine is Swedish. And and then that usually stops the conversation about right there. (laughs) And there's some Elam, Clilbrook, you know, contingency up in the rafters uh, there too. How sweet to be with you uh, uh, today. Um, We are um, bonded together uh, in that way. So now... Um, the message, the sermon. Um, as we've prayed already uh, today for the Ukraine, our thoughts turn there. I'm sure your mind, like mine, is turned to Ukraine often. We see these images, we hear these stories. My 
mind stopped upon this picture uh, that was just flashed up before of a young soldier um, who died early in the first few days of this uh, evil aggression into Ukraine. Maybe you've seen this picture already of this young Ukrainian Marine named Vitaly Skakun. Um, I understand that this young 25-year-old uh, Marine was stationed in the southern part of the Ukraine, and his battalion was entrusted with protecting a, a city and a rapid charge of a Russian column of tanks coming from the south from the area of, of Crimea. And as that, that column approached the city, Vitaly and his battalion were charged to protect. There was a single bridge that those tanks had to get over uh, to the city. I'll slaughter the name of the bridge, uh, Henischek a, a, a Bridge. And it was the, the strategic pinch point that would either protect the city or allow this column of tanks to come in. Vitaly volunteered for a dangerous mission, a solo mission to go undercover and rig the bridge with mines to blow up the bridge and stop the onslaught of the Russian tanks. And so he went. However, the Russian force sped toward the bridge. And while he rigged the bridge with mine, it became apparent to Vitaly that he did not have time to both set the fuse and to get to safety. His last communication to his Marine comrades reported that Vitaly radioed them very briefly to let them know the bridge was rigged, he was about to blow it up, and he would not be rejoining them. And a moment later, the bridge exploded and Vitaly perished. I paused on that story. And this young man's picture, uh, born in 1996, I suppose because it's, it's simply just an arresting story, isn't it? You come across a, a, a story of, of heroism and sacrifice like that. It stops us. And one of the reasons it stops us is there's a hidden little question tucked in a story like that, and you know it just like I do. And the question is, in the same circumstance, would I have done the same? Second reason I suppose I paused is I knew this was the season of Lent and it's a season of preaching about the significance of sacrifice and I had been asked to preach a Lenten service series about all the different entities and individuals who wanted Jesus to die and on Ash Wednesday my assignment out the gate on Ash Wednesday was this hard title the father wants the son to die. And I suppose the third reason I stopped on Vitaly's picture was that B and I also have a son born in 1996, and so it feels just kind of personal. So as I read the story of the sacrifice of this 25-year-old brave patriot named Vitaly, I found that I wanted to know. I wanted to know about this young man's family. Was he married? Did he have any children he left behind? Who were his parents? Were they in the picture? Did they know? Do they know still in that war-torn country about their son's sacrifice? Do we know the story here, but they don't know the story there? If they knew the story, I wanted to know what did the father, what did his father think when he heard of the sacrifice of his son? What did he say? Was he grieved, I'm sure? Was he anguished? Was he angered? Was he vengeful? Was he proud? I, I wondered, would Vitaly's father have supported his son's decision? 
I even imagine in my mind if Vitaly would have been able to have the time to slip in a second phone call before he called back to his battalion. A second quick call to his dad, seeking his father's advice, faced with this responsibility, but his own sacrifice as a result of it. Would the father, would Vitaly's father have even given his blessing to his son to sacrifice himself? Would he even have directed his son? Possibly. Commanded his son. Willed and wanted his son to do so. What would you say if you were Vitaly's father? It begs the question, what kind of a father What kind of a father could ever will their son to die? I paused and I thought, you know, if you want one prime reason to disbelieve all of this, all of these buildings that dot the rural countryside of Minnesota and and large megacities that gather every Sunday morning to worship this person called Christ. If you want to, one reason to disbelieve the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection and heaven and hell, if you want, if you want one reason to disbelieve, here it is. For what father would ever want or will their son to die? And yet here we are, asked to believe the Father wanted Jesus to die. Do you remember, uh, this is not text this morning, I'm watching the clock, the Messianic suffering servant uh, prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, it's a familiar text. In that text we, we hear the prophet and this, we, we, we kind of foreshadow uh, there's a foreshadowment we see ahead of the cross to, to come, and there's all these hard lines, these difficult lines, like, surely he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, oppressed, afflicted, led like a slam, lamb to slaughter. My goodness, these are hard words cut off from the land of the living, assigned a wicked grave, only to arrive, I think, at the most jarring line of all in Isaiah's prophecy. It's an unthinkable line. Because if you flash forward, the same father who loved his son so much that at his son's baptism, do you remember this when John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, the son of God? It's as if the father God almost wrenches apart a rift in the barrier between heaven and earth. And he pulls it apart and he calls, he bellows out to all of humanity and the universe of his eternal immense immeasurable love for his son when he says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And yet back here in Isaiah, foreseeing the cross, we see all the son would endure and come to find that same father wanting it to be so. We arrive at that 
10th verse of Isaiah 53 that says, yet it was the Lord's will. It was the Father's will to crush him, cause him to suffer. Elam, I ask you, how could it be that the Father would want his beloved son to die? To answer the question provokes I think answering a couple of other questions, I'll try to do this kind of quickly. I, for me, it makes me ask the question, so how much does God love us to do that? And maybe you, like me, I don't know, you come into this liturgical church year calendar. I find that about every Advent season through the gloom of November, I'm just coming gasping into Advent. I just need to see the light of Christmas and the incarnation. It rescues me. And I come to Lent this time and like, I have sang the old, old story, old, old times with an old, old heart. And I have to ask the question again in Lent, how much does he love me and how much do I need his love? Maybe you come into this Lenten season with that yawning question, yes, since a child I have recited for God so loved the world, and I've sang hymns and modern hymns that talk about how deep the Father's love for us that he should give his only son, but still this question and our belief of the answer, how much does God love us that he would spare that he would not spare his son for our salvation. One thing I've been pondering lately, I think it's worth remembering, is that when we ask that question, how much does, does God love us to know that God sent his son for us, that it's not as though we're in some kind of competition with Jesus for the love of the Father. That we don't arrive at an answer like, well, I guess God loves me more than he loves Jesus. I don't think that's where we're supposed to land, do you? What I mean is, have you ever heard the evangelistic appeal? I've heard it because I've used it before, where, where you say like, God loves you so much, do you know where I'm going with this? That if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would have died for you. It's kind of a nonsensical thing to say because we're not the only person on earth. It's a, you know, but you've heard that, right? I'm sure that I have included it in some sermon or some gospeling conversation with someone on the doorstep of faith. God loves you so much that if you were the only person on earth, he would have just for you given his son to die for you. And it's not so much that I disagree with that statement. It's just that I think I, I sense perhaps an inherent misperception in it. It's like we think the love of the father in willing his son to die is somehow a measurement of his love for us that somehow pitted against the love for his son and the love for us is attached to something lovable in us. That the father's love that motivates the sending of his son is some lovability factor that resides in me. It's like we all have some lovability factor or quotient, every human being stamped with the image of God, marred by sin though it be, has some love value factor that God sees and he, and he measures it and he decides that he loves you enough. You're worth loving enough to trade his son to die for you. In that argument, if you were the only person on earth God loved you so much, it kind of invites this kind of mathematical bidding or negotiating with God. It's almost in reverse what Abraham does with God over the city of Sodom. Do you remember that? It's like Abraham is thinking, if I can just find the sum 
righteousness or lovability in Sodom, maybe God will spare the city. Is there something worthy enough, lovable enough in the people of Sodom that if I can show God this some value of righteousness or lovability in Sodom, God, you should spare the city. God, if you found 50 righteous people with a lovability quotient of whatever X number, would that be worth sparing Sodom? And then, you know, it's kind of this reverse auctioneering that goes on between Abraham and God. It's like 50, 50, do I hear 45, 40, 30, 10? It's kind of like how much love worthiness does there need to be for God to save us? The misperception of Abraham apparently seems to be in thinking that the loving, saving work of God is conditioned upon the relative sum of worthiness in humanity to be loved and saved, rather than in the depthless reservoir of God's love poured out in grace, only from the sum of love in himself, period. Do you get that? You are loved today not because you are worthy of it or you measure up to some level. God sent not his son because there were 50 righteous people in Elam, but because there was this eternal, immense love in the Father himself for you, period. It's not that he finds enough to love in me in order to want his son to die. It is solely this love of God that sends his son to die in our place that resides solely in himself. And can I invite you this Lenten season, this Sunday, will you rest yourself there? Will you stop trying to wonder and measure and think whether or not this day, this week, the track record of 2022 so far, you're worth dying for? Let me tell you, you're not. I'm not. But he does send his son to die for you for the love that resides in himself for you. What a place to rest. I think Romans 5 really cements this. Where the Apostle Paul says, you see, at just the right time, at just the right time, just like the incarnation was just at the right time, so in his death, he says, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, while we were still sinning, God, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, the Father, so great was the love in himself for us that he willed, wanted his son to die for those utterly unlovely, illovable, unworthy, ungrateful, the children who wanted nothing to do with their heavenly Father. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Paul says, yeah, there's, there's newsworthy stories out there like Vitaly's kind of story where a man gives his life for the love of country, for patriotism, for others. But he says this is a far universe beyond that when he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinning, while we were still the aggressor, while the betrayer was still betraying, while the unfaithful was still faithless, while the denier was still denying, etc., etc., while I was still being me, while we were still sinners, the Father willed his son Jesus to die for us. Rest there, people. Bask there. Our Father gives his son not for what he finds in us to love, but for what he finds in himself. What a great place to be.
Let me move on. First, we ask this question, how much does God love us? And to me, it begs the next question, so how much do we need this love of God? I ask a question, and I, I asked this question of a church in Fergus Falls a couple weeks ago, so it's not just that this is a rural congregation, because I'm a rural boy, but I, I'm curious if anybody here is familiar with chickens or raises chickens. Anybody have a chicken? Awesome. Chicken. Chickens. Be proud. Yeah. Hold your hand up. Thank you, young lady. So uh, if you're familiar with chickens, you know this about them. I stood outside this morning in the dark and heard my neighbor's chicken out in rural Underwood. Um, B and I are just, uh, we still have the faint glow of tan from having some vacation in Kauai. Uh, back a few weeks ago, we returned. Um, if you are ever fortunate enough to vacation on Kauai, you are fam are, you're then familiar with the Kauai chicken issue. Anybody know about Kauai chickens at all? Okay. We, well, here, let me tell you about Kauai chicken issue. So Hurricane Iwa in 1982 and Hurricane Aniki in 1992 devastated the island, blew apart the, uh, the chicken coops of, of Kauai, and all of these chickens were released into jungle where they couldn't be recaptured in a climate where they had no natural predator. And they just propagated. And as a matter of fact, they mated with native kind of birds that came over from the Polynesians hundreds of years before. And if you visit Kauai, there are chickens everywhere. Every resort. They're like a protected bird. As a matter of fact, I even, this is not a shirt I got this trip, but this is, this is a Kauai shirt right here. And it's the dirt shirt on the back is the, is the red dirt rooster. They're just everywhere, these chickens. And every dusk and every dawn, you wake. You startle. Because there is a rooster. Oh, man, you guys went and got pictures for me. You're quick back there. They are everywhere, and they, they, are, they startle you. Anyways, we were on Kauai, and we had a couple weeks of vacation there, and I worked remotely for a week, and there were days when the family went off on a hike, and I said, nope, today is a CLB work day, I'm staying home, and I had a paper, uh, I had a writing project to finish, and I, honestly, I don't do well with writing deadlines, I procrastinate, and I perfectionize, and all of that, and I, I like to write, I just don't like pulling it all together, I've got another writing deadline, I've got to work on this afternoon and tomorrow. At any rate, several days, I'd send the family off to go on a hike and do fun stuff and have fish tacos and shave ice and happiness and whatever while I stayed back to work. And I'm lodged in my room, you know, stroking my chin, plunking away on my keyboard, and frankly, I'm struggling with it because, you know, FOMO, I have the fear of missing, I'm thinking about what my family's doing, I want to be with them, and very much I want them when they do come home to, for me to be able to say, Dad's done with the project, I'm yours now. Dad's on vacation. And so I'm feeling the pressure of both of that going on at the same time, and I can neither confirm nor deny that multiple times during that day, I may or may not have wandered off from my work on the lanai on this paper and went and sat in the hot tub and went and had my own shave ice and went wandering. You know, that might have happened a couple times. I was kind of, you know, letting the day get away from me, making some progress, and I'm starting to feel the pressure of they're going to come back and I don't have this done, and I'm working on in mid-afternoon, I'm making some progress. And, you know, roosters are supposed to announce the morning and the night, right? Why is it that roosters at like 2.45 in the afternoon can announce 
night when they're not even close. So I'm working away on this when all of a sudden, right beneath my lanai, one of that omnipresent core of Kauai roosters, I'm there working along and all of a sudden, you know, right underneath my, and I'm like, you gotta be kidding. And I'm like this, it's like, no, it's not that late. And I was honestly ticked off at that rooster because he was informing me that I was not cutting my, I was not finishing the project in time. Evening was coming. And I sat there a little frustrated with myself and more at the rooster. And I'm thinking things like, can't be that time yet. Get away. Go chase around Henny Penny or other roosters. Get out of here. Because, you know, his crow was the signal that my performance that day was not enough that it didn't measure up, that I was running out of time, and I sat there feeling frustrated and disappointed about that chicken, and for whatever reason, I stopped and I couldn't help think of Peter. Of course, Peter's rooster was a morning rooster, announcing the dawn. I had an evening chicken. Peter's issue and self-disappointment wasn't thwarting a day in a writing assignment. His was not thwarting the crucifixion of his friend, the Messiah. His issue was the three denials of his rabbi friend, Jesus, that Jesus even predicted. And his issue was that at the same time of that rooster crow, there was Jesus staring right at him in the eye across the courtyard reminding him of his prediction of Peter's failure at the rooster's crow marking it. And I sat there in paradise of Kauai on my lanai with the rooster crowing and my own falling short, thinking I'm letting my family down. And I got to thinking that Peter and I were more the same than different. I thought I expect when in the dark night by the campfire, Peter must have felt that bad feeling in his gut. After his betrayal of Jesus, he must have thought again and again, man, I really screwed up. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to go back and tell those three people the truth. I'm going to man up and testify for Jesus. I'm, I'm going to be a better Peter tomorrow than I was today, but I've, I've had a bad string here, but I'm going to have a better you know, 2022 than 2021. I'll bet anything in, in the dark, in that long darkness before dawn, I bet there were many times in which Peter thought, how can I get myself out of this? How can I, how can I prove myself to, to Jesus that I am a worthy friend? And I'll bet anything that when in the dark that rooster crowed, Peter was ticked as well and mortified. I can just imagine welling up in Peter the some thoughts of every sinner who faced a deadline of sorts and every excuse and every attempt of remedy to make the situation better or look better, every chance to set a new goal, right the ship, whatever, make amends, turn over a new leaf, fix this mess, improve my spiritual report card, whatever, try harder, do better, so hopefully some people, maybe God himself, will look on me and not consider me a spiritual failure. But you know what? Every day, every dawn, every dusk, it all stops with the rooster crow and the look of Jesus. and the honesty that I need a savior. And honestly, I wept there on my lanai, 
thinking, you know, Peter and I are just alike. And it wasn't because I didn't get my writing assignment done on time. It was an admission of my absolute helplessness as a sinner to make myself right. It was to know the stare of Jesus that marked broken promises and falling short and an absolute inability to make it right. A couple days later, riding in the car with our daughter Gracia, dropping her off at the airport, I told her about my musing and admitted my trip to get shave ice in the hot tub and whatever, and I told her, I think I've got a sermon brewing in me, and she said, I think you do, and we decided the title of the sermon should be The Rooster Always Crows. Do you know that for yourself, people? The law always speaks. We're always faced with the end of ourselves. How much do you need the love of the Father to send the Son? The rooster always crows. You are absolutely helpless to fix your sin problem. Every day, every night. This is why the Father wanted the Son to die for my sin and yours. Because we are helpless every day, every dawn, every dusk to save ourselves. Only the Father's Son's death can rescue us. And so let me sum up, up this way. How much do we need God's love? That much. How could it be that the Father would want his son Jesus to die? It asks us those questions. How much does the Father love us? How much do we need that love? That the Father could do no other than will and give his son Jesus to die. You know, it is of interest to me when I read in 2 Corinthians 5, a text about reconciliation, where it lands in verse 21, where it said, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is why the Father sent his Son to die. You know, it's curious to me, I'll land the plane this way, how it's so depicted in the passion of Christ the distinction between darkness and light. Have you noticed that in the crucifixion story? Do you notice how when Jesus came to this world, he entered this world, dark world, as light? The star shone, glory streamed from heaven above, the Christmas story. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. At the end of his earthly life, do you remember when the authorities came to arrest Jesus? Do you, do you remember what he said to the authorities that came to arrest him? He said, this is your hour when darkness reigns. You recall with me in the course of the last hours of Jesus' life as he hung on the cross, how intensely he was aware of his relationship with his father, that unbroken eternal relationship interrupted, that relationship of mutual love and care so intimately connected, but then inserted into that everlasting communion, that open relationship of love is this contrasting imagery of darkness. Where do the son's thoughts go facing death except to his father when the soldiers are torturing him with beatings and the scourge and the nails? Do you remember? He says, Father, Father, forgive them. At the very end of his life, at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. by our clock, Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And of course, the forlorn ache of bearing every sin, the guilt of all sins, every mark of sin, every grief of sin, every broken part of sin all being borne by Jesus on the cross, this hideous collective brunt sum of the curse of sin, bearing that isolating righteous judgment against sin, knowing 
for the first time in eternity, the rejection of his father. Still at three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, daddy, my father God, why have you forsaken me? This whole passion of love and trust, rejection, isolation is displayed in the surrounding image of light and darkness. Do you remember the story of the crucifixion? We're told in three of the gospels at noon, midday, Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, Mark's gospel says. Matthew's gospel says the same. And Luke's gospel, chapter 23, even more dramatically informs us. It was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And it even says, you know, for anybody doubters out there that just think there was a dust storm, a cloud or, or whatever, you know, there was a, 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 something blocking the sun that day, a harmaton dust cloud. Luke adds the comment, he says, for the sun stopped shining. It wasn't just dim. It's just like the sun turned off. From noon till three. But you know what? It was for just an hour. Just a short season, the hour of darkness. And then at three o'clock at Jesus' death, do you remember what happens? Temple veil is torn top to bottom. Tombs open up. Dead saints rise up, walk around, appear to many. And what else happened at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? We never, we never really pause and, and think about it. I don't know why I've never contemplated that before, but all of the Gospels deem it vital enough to the story to point out that darkness reigned from noon till 3 when Jesus gave up his spirit. And so we have to presume what at 301? The light came back on. The sun shone. Since debt was paid. There then when the beloved son of the father who had been willed and sent to die. Who had accomplished his mission for the salvation of humanity. And the father who had so ached for his son as his son had for his father during that dark time now flipped the switch on because you see the sun shining shows that love and salvation has won. So this spectacle, why did the father send his son to die for your sins and mine? How could it be that a father would will that? It is for this reason. It is because the father's eternal love always, always trumps the hour of darkness. It has been finished. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this news that your love always wins, always trumps, always is victorious over this short season, this sin-torn world, this hour of darkness. Thank you that you were willing to send your son to will your son, and that your son was willing to go and die in our place. Because indeed, eternal love always trumps the hour of darkness. Amen. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. 
Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.